Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Independence Coronavirus Podcast. I'm David Marley, Deputy Editor at The Independent. This podcast is about getting behind the headlines, examining the issues that are affecting our lives as we try to navigate our way through these extraordinary times. We have become used to describing the COVID crisis as unprecedented. And for almost all of us, it is true that we have never seen a pandemic claim the number of lives we see today, not to mention the global lockdowns that have removed the freedoms we would normally take for granted. But it is also true, of course, that pandemics have been affecting us throughout history and that there have been repeated warnings to prepare for the kind of seismic event we are now experiencing. What better way to understand both where we find ourselves now and what might happen from here than to draw on that historical context. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Mark Honigsbaum, an author, medical historian and expert on pandemics. Mark's critically acclaimed book, The Pandemic Century, takes us from the 1918 Spanish flu, which claimed an incredible 50 million lives, through to more recent diseases, including HIV, SARS, Ebola, and of course, coronavirus. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. I imagine this is a good, if very busy time to be an historian specializing in pandemics. (laughs) Yes, you could certainly say that. Um, uh, Well, I mean, obviously I don't wish uh, coronavirus and this misery on anyone but it has rather brought my discipline medical history into uh, relevance. Yeah, I mean, I've never had so many calls. So you spent a lot of time looking at, uh, looking at pandemics and looking at this issue um, and looking at the historical background of, of, of other outbreaks. Um, you make clear in your book that we should have been expecting something like the COVID-19 crisis. So can I start by asking you if it's fair to say that we failed to learn the lessons of history uh, and why that is? Well, I mean, I, like, I, I often joke that one of the lessons of history we fail to learn is the lessons of medical history. And I say that specifically because I think medical historians, because we're used to thinking in, you know, long time frames, uh, you know, really we need to be part of the pandemic planning process so that, you know, we, we don't keep on falling into these traps. Um, so th- there are many lessons. Um, the most relevant, I suppose, is that there seems to be this cycle of panic and neglect. And what I mean by that is that whenever there's um, a kind of epidemic crisis, so, you know, listeners to your podcast may recall the 2009 swine flu pandemic or, or even the scares over bird flu in the early noughties. So, um, like COVID-19 at the beginning, those filled newspapers, there were headlines, we tracked these diseases, there was hysteria, 
websites crashed, you know, government helplines crashed. Um, and we heard like scary figures. But um, once those crises pass, then we move on to the next thing. It's, you know, it slips right down the agenda. And it slips right down the sort of pandemic planning agenda as well. Um, and one of the biggest lessons is that, um, you know, there's a lot of talk when these crises hit that, oh, look, we really need to invest in better vaccines and therapeutic drugs. And then typically you'll see a flurry of funding and maybe an increase in research funding. But then that funding drifts away. Um, and scientists, you know, who build, basically scientists need research funding. And that funding isn't always available for coronaviruses and other diseases, which, you know, although they can have catastrophic impacts, they're relatively rare. Um, and certainly pharmaceutical companies don't have any real interest in, it's not a lucrative market for violence, so it has to be supported by government. Um, and that doesn't happen enough, I'm afraid, between uh, epidemics. So I, I, I guess the, the, the scale of this, this is, it now means that that investment hopefully continues and we won't be in that cycle of boom and bust. Well, yeah, I mean, so the point is that, I mean, prior to um, the COVID-19, there were organizations like Bill Gates, for instance, but in this country, the Wellcome Trust, big medical charity, uh, and they supported in particular this organi organization called CEPI, uh, CEPI, which um, was actively trying to raise funds for a series of pathogens including coronaviruses, Mars, MERS and SARS were on that list, but so were things like um, Lassa fever and, you know, disease you've probably never heard of, like Congo hemorrhagic fever. So there's always like this moving list of targets and they succeed, I think, in raising something like um, $750 million towards a target of, um, uh, um, you know, a billion dollars. But what we really need was we needed eight billion to be invested now so for the sake of eight billion before the pandemic we're facing a potential hit on the global economy of the order of one to three trillion dollars i mean that that's just short-term thinking to my mind so as you as you look back across the sweep over the last hundred years how does how does coronavirus compare to some of the other uh, pandemics we've seen. Obviously, um, Spanish flu uh, claimed, a, I mean, obviously the death toll now is already shocking for coronavirus, but the Spanish flu claimed an extraordinary number of, of, of lives. Where do you kind of see, is, is, it, is it useful to draw comparisons between, between those things? Well, I, th I think it's inevitable, isn't it? Um, you know, we, we, we always want to know how this one measures up to the so-called big one, um, you know. Uh, and, you know, Spanish flu is usually presented as the big one simply because, um, you know, retrospectively, disease model modelers like Neil Ferguson <laughs> at Imperial have gone back and sort of recalculated the numbers. What's interesting, though, about the Spanish flu is at the time, um, people didn't really realize that it had this, these catastrophic impacts. Um, I mean, they knew that, you know, the death toll had been pretty bad. And so in 1919, I think the Times published a leader talking about six million deaths globally. Uh, but that was way underestimate, as we now know. Um, so I think the coronavirus, COVID-19, clearly it's not as bad as the Spanish flu, and a good thing too. Um, you know, that's progress, right? We, we didn't have ventilators, antibiotics, and high-tech medical care. 
Um, but there was very little, little effort at social distancing um, in 1918 because there was a war going on. It, it wasn't practical or possible. Um, so we have made progress. I mean, that's the good news. But on the negative side of the ledger, um, there are many more risks today than there were in 1918, principally because of globalization. Um, and by that, I don't mean the usual idea that, you know, we're all more interconnected, uh, which we are, of course. Um, but it's also because of these long global supply chains um, and, and the fact that um, in rapidly industrializing parts of the world, particularly Southeast Asia, where you have these mega cities, and these huge demands for animal protein, um, you know, pigs and chickens are having to be farmed on, a, uh, on an industrial scale. And that creates all sorts of um, opportunities for um, novel pathogens to get in, to either spill over directly into domestic uh, animals like pigs and poultry, or get into the actual food chains themselves. Um, and, and this is one of the things that really needs to change, or we need to think a lot harder about reducing those risks. Although the, the interconnectedness that you talk about obviously is also then a, once that takes hold is then the kind of the way in that, that that can spread so quickly because we're flying around the world and that, that can spread at such, at such speed. Well, yeah, so we saw, we've seen this, we saw this with SARS-1 in 2002, you know, essentially um, SARS got, got out because um, an elderly Chinese doctor was, didn't realize he was infected, but had been treating patients in Guangdong in southern China, traveled, traveled to Kowloon, checked into uh, the Metropole Hotel there. And uh, unknown, unbeknownst to him, he managed to transmit the virus to something like um, 16 other guests at the hotel who were staying on the same floor as him or shared the lift with him. And they all then got on planes the next day and introduced um, SARS-1 to Vietnam to Toronto and Canada, to Thailand and, you know, other countries. Um, and similar things happened again with Ebola in West Africa in 2014 to 16, when we saw introductions by business travelers to Dallas uh, in the United States, but also to European cities and, and to, um, to uh, um, Nigeria. Um, so those were kind of wake up calls, warning signals, you know, Ebola could have become a pandemic. Um, and the only reason it didn't really is we were able to mobilize this massive, massive medical and humanitarian response. Uh, and also something else I was thinking the other day, which kind of um, really sort of contrasts with what's going on right now in Britain is, for some reason, we were able to sort of mobilize scores of contact tracers in, in Sierra Leone and, and other parts. And there was this, this whole effort to get Ebola to zero. That was the phrase. And how did they get it to zero? They got it to zero by having, you know, laboratory testing and sending out, um, you know, uh, squads, teams of contact tracers to chase down infectious patients and chase up their contacts and their contacts of contacts. Um, and they, they successfully drove infections to zero so that we extinguished that epidemic. Um, for some reason, we can't do that here today in, in the heart of a modern, modern developed country. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, you, you mentioned SARS as well, which is, as you say, didn't become a, a pandemic because there was there certain restrictions on travel put in place and it was kind of dealt with quickly. Um, what, how, how, did, how did Corona manage to get the foothold that it did 
as quickly as it did and why weren't we able well, to, to respond? Well, you see, I, that, this is, that's a very interesting question. So um, to back up slightly, you, you kind of asked me, um, you know, what are the lessons of pre-pandemics? And I gave you one, but I mean, um, one of the key lessons is, is the, the ecological lesson. So um, we, we know that a lot of these viruses start in wild, in wild animal habitats or with wild animals. Um, and that, um, in fact, that, that these so-called spillover events are occurring all the time. Um, so um, in my book, The Pandemic Century, the new chapter on COVID, I spent a lot of time talking to veterinary ecologists in particular, the EcoHealth Alliance in New York. Uh, it's a New York-based NGO, but um, uh, prior to this outbreak, they um, had sent teams of um, veterinary ecologists to caves in southern China, where bats that harbor this and other coronaviruses reside. Uh, and we know that local people go into those caves all the time. Uh, for instance, they may actually go there to catch bats because people still eat bats in China, other parts of Southeast Asia. But they may also just go there to collect uh, feces uh, with which to fertilize their fields. Um, but so because of the way that um, agriculture has been changing, um, we've been driving out traditional farming methods and forcing people to um, farm on previously uncultivated land closer to these wild animal habitats. We also, we also go into forests to collect timber and precious minerals. And then we have roads that we didn't have before connecting those places to cities. But the point is that we know from antibody tests that a lot of these people have antibodies to all sorts of coronaviruses. But most of those don't actually you know, set up transmission chains that then get to somewhere like Wuhan. Um, so this one did, the jury's still out on whether it really did indeed start at this um, wild animal market in Wuhan, or whether it was already more widespread and that's just where we noticed it first. Mm. Um, but the point is that, um, yeah, I mean, th this is happening more and more. Um, and, you know, in order to stop it, we have to just get a lot better at, you know, doing l a number of things simultaneously, but one of which is, is being aware of the other coronaviruses that are out there that, that have also have this pandemic potential. Um, I think with the coronavirus, the key thing that was so hard to see at the beginning was that because it has this long latency period, you know, two weeks. So if you think of influenza, which was the, um, which was the model for pandemic planners, influenza typically has an incubation period of two to four days, okay? So there's a very short window um, uh, and then somebody's sick and you can see somebody's sick. And, and SARS one was similar because when people got ill, they, you couldn't mistake the illness. But with the coronavirus had a long latency period and many people don't develop severe illness or any symptoms at all. So we now know that there are a lot of um, asymptomatic people or just mildly affected people uh, and that there may have been this period in January, February, even into March, where it was spreading invisibly through these asymptomatic contact chains. And we weren't seeing that. And that's what the scientists couldn't see. That's what the disease modelers couldn't see. Um, so this is why you really need, you know, boots on the ground, contact tracing teams on the ground with diagnostics, because that's how you pick up these things when you can't see them otherwise. Given that it has taken hold and that 
as you say, there's all, all, the, all those issues that you, that you mentioned. Do, is it possible, looking back at how other um, pandemics have and, and epidemics have, have um, unfolded, is it possible to kind of predict or what do you think is the best guess for how this one goes? Do we, do we kind of have second waves of it? Is it going to, do we get used to it being around for a long time? Do we, what, what, do, what do you think? Well, look, I mean, this, this, this is, I suppose, a $64,000 question because we're in uncharted territory. Um, so, I mean, it'd be fair to say we just don't know. Nobody really knows for certain. Um, but the one thing we do know and that can guide us is that nobody anywhere in the world had any immunity to this virus. Okay, zero immunity. Obviously, that's changed now because we've been through the first wave and we've been able to sort of do testing of populations. So we know that in places like Spain, Italy or New York, they hit particularly hard. And those urban areas, something like maybe as much as 20% of the population does have some sort of immunity. But you go away from those areas and outside London, uh, you know, in the countryside will be the same. It drops below 10%, maybe as low as 5%. That makes coronavirus very different from influenza. Okay, so even when a new pandemic strain of influenza comes along, because it will share proteins with previous pandemic strains, and most of the population would have been exposed to that previous influenza type, you can count on a certain degree of cross immunity. So when they run models of pandemics, um, usually the assumption is that the, um, the influenza virus will affect a quarter of the population as it did in 1918, or worst case scenario that will take uh, it'll have to affect 50% of the population before you reach that magical herd immunity uh, figure. Um, so I think we've got a long way to go because um, we don't know. You know, it could just be that coronavirus, there's so much we don't know about it. We don't know, for instance, if there's a genetic element that means that some people aren't going to have severe illness even when they get affected because they've just inherited lucky genes. Uh, but right now, we have no reason to believe that. Um, you know, we can only go on what we know. And what we know is that typically in pandemics, you need to get to two thirds of the population to achieve something like herd immunity. So I think we're a long way from that. We should expect to see further outbreaks, despite what you may read uh, from libertarian commentators, uh, conspiracy theorists. And I'm sad to say, um, some people in academia, I've been struck by how uh, many sociologists, anthropologists even kind of want to reduce everything to discourse and deny biological realities. You know, this is one thing we have to be aware of. There are such things as diseases out there and they do kill people. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With, with that in mind, um, how, how, do we, how do we judge or how will history come to judge the response of, of, of governments. There's not been this coordinated international response in the same way that you described um, with Ebola, for example. But if we look closer to home, where um, you know the UK was much slower into lockdown than, than some other some other places, obviously the UK death toll and infection rate is very high compared to neighbouring countries. Boris Johnson said yesterday he's very proud of the um, UK's response. Does that does that seem like a should, should he be very proud? No, he's he, 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 done a good job. No, he should be ashamed. I mean, you know, I don't want to put it too too strongly, but I mean, people literally have blood on their hands. You know, um, if it was obvious to me, uh, and you know, I'm not a scientific expert on Sage, but it was obvious to me once we saw what was happening in uh, Lombardy, northern Italy, that you know the genie had escaped the bottle, right? And it was here right now in our midst in Europe. And, you know, we were seeing people flying back from skiing holidays. Um, and we knew that, you know, there were reports early on of this particular, I forget his name, who arrived in Brighton, you know, we all saw those, those stories. That was the time to, um, you know, stop people, quarantine people coming to this Britain on flights. It's not, it's not now after it's escaped. That was the time to have done that. Um, but I, I don't think you can entirely uh, blame the politicians because, um, you know, they were taking their guidance from scientists. Um, and I think it's fair to say that, that scientists um, were too slow or they, or they didn't act with enough precaution. Uh, because on the basis of the precautionary principle, you know, two weeks before the government brought in these measures, I was already, you know, telling my elderly 88-year-old mum Mum, you're not going out to the theatre anymore. Um, you know, I don't want you getting on any buses. Um, by the way, here's a face mask. It might protect you. You know, these were all common sense things that anyone could have seen and been advising at the time. And we didn't do it. And we didn't do it even when we saw countries in Southeast Asia who had had direct experience of SARS-1, a previous coronavirus, doing exactly these things. And, and it seemed to be working. They seemed to be slowing the spread of this. Um, so why weren't we doing it? Um, I just come back to, I think there's this sort of um, fallacy of British exceptionalism um, that somehow, you know, we're different or better or superior to other countries. So we don't need to do these things. And I can't help in thinking that it was a, a combination of that sense of exceptionalism and privilege, but also a kind of cavalier, you know, amateurish, will muddle through type of um, approach, um, which has cost us so dearly. Um, I mean, it's, it's so terrible. We've become inured to these numbers, but these numbers are horrific uh, and they're still going on every day. I mean, there was this famous, I mean, yesterday I, I read that, you know, 
we have more cases in Britain than in the whole of the European Union combined. I mean, that's just truly shocking. It's not success, that's failure on a colossal scale. Hmm. In, in the book, you described the, the kind of the, the Chinese response and its initial uh, cover up or its initial kind of reluctance to share what was going on as its Chernobyl moment. Um, they failed to instigate their lockdown uh, quickly. Five million people, you write, left um, Wuhan in the, in the weeks after they knew it was basically an issue there. Um, many of those five million going to international destinations. How will how will we come to judge China's role in in, in all of this? Well, uh, I think we I think we have we have to judge it harshly. Um, all although with a caveat that it was better. Uh, than it was during uh, the first SARS outbreak in 2002, where many months went by before they were willing to admit they were dealing with a new pathogen, and, th and they were very reluctant to share any information. Um, I think, you know, that crucial weeks were left, I think at least three weeks up until the third week of January, when they actually locked down Wuhan and, you know, acknowledged publicly the scale of the issue. That was a crucial window where maybe there was an opportunity to close down the infection chains and to stop people boarding flights from Wuhan. Um, but it, you know, in all likelihood, uh, we now know from genotype from from looking at you know when this virus most likely emerged. So the first index patient we now know was December the first. That means that it was already circulating in Wuhan and maybe wider in mid-November. So in all likelihood, people were already boarding flights, infected with the virus and traveling all over from that period on. Um, and, you know, the Chinese did, uh, as soon as they identified it was a, a new SARS, a uh, new coronavirus, um, they did publish the genetic sequence online and share it with the World Health Organization and other scientists. And they did that very early. They did that in mid-January. Um, so that that was a vast improvement over last time. Um, but yeah, I think transparency is is critical. I mean, the Chinese definitely need to be more transparent. I mean, even now, you know, um, I'm not sure we can fully trust their figures on on how many cases there were and how many people died. It seems to me the figures are very low, given you know what we saw on our television screens. Um, but also we need to be more transparent in this country. You know, we still don't know, well, as of yesterday, we're not sure, you know, how many, um, how many tests there have been and how many contacts there are to chase up and be returned, you know. Um, so we have to be careful of judging China too harshly when we don't seem to be much better at getting our act together. And the World Health Organization has come in for some, from stick from uh, famously from Donald Trump. Um, have they have they done a play, play, played a good role? What's their role been this time around compared to how they how they've acted in uh, in previous situations? Well, first of all, Trump is a jackass, so that's all to be said on that subject. Uh, but look, I mean, th there are certainly questions I think for the World Health Organization. Um, so uh, you know. Tedros Ghebreyesus, the Director General, I, I have huge admiration for him but he's a man in a very difficult diplomatic position. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the WHO has been accused of being a little bit too close to the WHO in some areas. I think there's some truth in those allegations. 
but I know that behind the scenes they have been very, very critical. And um, we we got a leak this week from the Associated Press that um, Mike Ryan and key figures in uh, the WHO's outbreak response were not happy at all with the lack of data coming out of China. Um, publicly, we didn't hear that from the WHO. Why? Because essentially they're a diplomatic organisation, and you know, really, what what is to be gained by them publicly slapping down the WHO when what, what they needed and what they were trying to do was foster more openness on the part of the Chinese and getting them to see that, you know, um, there was an audience who was open and wanting them to share data with. And eventually they, they did allow uh, Bruce Aylward, you know, um, uh, um, WHO's kind of, um, expert to go into China and, and, and see what the Chinese were doing with their response. So that was very useful. You know, we need to um, keep diplomatic channels open. Uh, and sometimes that means not openly criticizing people, um, but doing that behind the scenes when you get a chance in those one-on-ones. I think that's what they were trying to do. Uh, in, the, in the book, obviously, as, I, as I've mentioned, you start with, um, with the Spanish flu, so 1918. Um, you touch on um, a, a lesser-known uh, outbreak called Great Parrot Fever, which was a pandemic in the yeah. uh, 1930s. And then we come on to the ones which are perhaps more familiar, um, as I mentioned, SARS, HIV, Ebola, th those things, many of which seem to be in kind of relatively recent memory over the last 30, 40 years, perhaps, some of them, if you're yeah. going back to HIV. Um, which seems to be an increasing frequency um, in pandemics um, or epidemics uh, in, in more, more recently. You've, you've said already that there are thousands of unknown coronaviruses out there. Mm. Is it right that the, that the incidence is increasing in frequency? Should we get used to the idea that there are more pandemics likely to be coming our way? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So, um, you know, when I, when I wrote the, the, when I wrote the, um, the first draft of this book came out in hardback a year ago. Um, you know, I was aware that there seemed to be some evidence, but that, you know, the jury was still out. But I think now that having read the latest scientific research on this, that um, so um, there, are, there are groups of ecologists who have been mapping disease hotspots and looking back uh, to, you know, the mid 20th century. And they've shown essentially that the rate of emergence is increasing. Um, and that seems to have begun actually around the mid-period of the last century. HIV AIDS was the kind of the first wake-up call, really, that, you know, that, that even though HIV, we know, we now know probably emerged, interestingly, before 1920, um, it really only became widespread when globalization enabled it to, you know, to, to get more widely spread in Africa and then to reach Haiti and the United States and everywhere else. But um, if we look at the recent run of epidemic events um, or pandemic events, um, so, you know, the new century began, so the new millennium began with SARS in 2002. Then we had um, the bird flu outbreaks. Uh, then we had uh, swine influenza 2009 from Mexico, Southern California. Then we had Ebola in West Africa in 2014. That wasn't over before we had Zika reaching Brazil and spreading throughout the Americas in 2016. We then had several more Ebola outbreaks in 
Democratic Republic of the Congo, followed now by COVID. And just last week, apparently there's a new Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So um, definitely the rate of emergence is increasing. Um, and we also know from the work of EcoHealth Alliance and other groups who um, have been into these wild animal habitats and taken samples and analyzed um, looking for new viruses that, and so in the last five years, they've identified something like 500 new coronaviruses in wild bat populations, 50 of which have SARS-like properties, so could be another COVID. Um, but really astounding figure, um, which I come back to all the time, is that, you know, bats make up one-fifth of all the mammals on the planet. One-fifth, okay? There are a hell of a lot of bats out there. Um, and, you know, these teams of uh, ecologists are only able to sample a small proportion, tiny proportion. So their estimate, basically, rule of thumb estimate, based on what they've been able to discover in the last five years, looking at these little samples, is there could be as many as 13,000 coronaviruses out there that have yet to be discovered. Now, of course, not all of those um, will have the ability to cause severe disease in humans. And very few of them will be able to actually set up transmission chains in people. But it only takes one. I mean, that's really the lesson from HIV going through to COVID. It only has, to, you know, only one virus has to, you know, uh, be able to thread this, this genetic needle and emerge into human population for it to become a pandemic. So, you know, we just need to reduce the, the chances of it, you know, rolling the dice and getting lucky in that respect and us getting unlucky. Well, that's a, that's a very sobering thought, although um, hopefully the fact that we're going through this experience now will mean that the kind of boom and bust in, in research uh, that you spoke about earlier doesn't, doesn't continue and we, we invest properly in yeah. monitoring and trying to tackle these things. Could I just say something about, um, you know, what we're seeing now with the um, protests across America and here? Um, so there's been a lot of, obviously, you know, the spark has nothing to do with COVID. Um, it's to do with the appalling race, racist behavior of American um, police officers. But um, there is, I think, a link to COVID because um, that is the background. You know, why are people so angry? Um, it's not just because this uh, was caught on video and everyone can see what happened. I think it's because uh, people can also see the way that pandemics don't fall equally on all sections of society. Um, you know, we've seen this in this country, uh, the way that, you know, many of the um, people in the NHS who've been worse affected were, you know, people of Asian and ethnic minority origins. Um, the way that uh, if you are African-American, you have a three times greater uh, risk of dying from COVID than, um, you know, uh, if you're white, a white American. And we've seen similar figures here, you know, bus drivers, people with job insecurity, people uh, who, you know, um, whose incomes, they don't have the incomes that protect them from these risks are far greater. And I think that, you know, th this, this should really be a wake-up call about, real, about the sort of priorities of of politicians and our governments. Because after all, why are we having to socially distance? Why are we having to put the economy on hold? 
it's only because we've starved the NHS of funds for over a decade. You know, if we had a health service that was fit for purpose and a laboratory testing service that was fit for purpose, i.e. that we had invested money in. And I think the really crucial thing is that, you know, we have stripped local authorities uh, of uh, their powers, but also their capacity. Um, and I, I think one of the things that really ought to come out of this um, kind of political awakening, if you like, is that, yeah, we have to think in global terms that, you know, the whole health of the planet is, is at stake. And, you know, also self-interestedly, the survival of the human species. But in order to address these colossal problems, you know, we can't, all we can do is, you know, act locally within our own community. So I think this is a kind of positive thing, I hope, that comes out of, of COVID, you know, that we're rediscovering the power of communities. Um, but we really have to empower those communities now and give them, you know, the ability to do contact tracing, right? Or to address social and uh, issues of inequality in their communities. Uh, Mark, thank you very much um, for that. That's a, perhaps a more positive thought to end on if we can uh, um, uh, think about how, how communities might take control going forward. Um, Mark's book, uh, The Pandemic Century, A History of Global Contagion from the Spanish Flu to COVID-19 uh, is out in paperback now. Is that right? Yeah, today? Today it's actually launched officially today, although there will be no book party because we're all you know, we're not allowed to do that yet. Very <laughs> disappointing. I'm glad it's out there. Hopefully next year you can have a, have a belated one. Yes. Uh, th th thanks again for, for joining us. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you're a new listener, uh, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. If you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss, do get in touch on email at the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk or you can use the hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast, I-N-D-Y, Indie Coronavirus Podcast, and we'll see your post. You can read all about uh, the unfolding news on our website, independent.co.uk, and in our downloadable daily edition app. Uh, and there's also an email newsletter you can sign up to if you want the latest uh, news and advice delivered to your inbox. Uh, thank you so much again for listening, and please join us again next time. 